Hi, I'm Elise Dayeem, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 15 new Class of 2022 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Azam Ahmad, a Class of 2022 Emerson Collective Fellow. Azam is a reporter at the New York Times and was formerly Bureau Chief in Afghanistan, as well as Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. During his more than five years of living in Mexico and working across the region, he covered corruption and violence extensively, including investigative projects that received several awards, including the Polk Award and the Overseas Press Club Award. So congratulations again on your acceptance this year. To start, can you tell me more about your fellowship project and what you're hoping to do with it this year? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm thrilled to be selected. So the project is going to be a narrative book looking at the life of a woman named Miriam Rodriguez. Back in 2014, one of the local cartels kidnapped and then killed her daughter. And after spending months looking for help from the authorities, wound up investigating and finding all of the people responsible herself. As a result of her, her pursuit of justice, however, she wound up being killed by the same cartel. This began as a story in the New York Times, and I decided that I wanted to expand and sort of amplify it, not only to get more intimately into the life of this remarkable person, but to use it as a, almost as a parable to talk about what's happening in Mexico. In some ways to answer the question, you know, what, what went wrong with our southern neighbor, southern neighbor? How did it become so violent? How do you have a country where a mother loses her daughter and is forced to find the people responsible herself and then winds up dead as a result of it? And so it's it's choosing sort of a micro narrative to tell a much broader picture of, of the failure of the state of impunity and of violence. So a few questions about the project itself. But before I dive into those, I'm curious to actually learn more about you and your background um, in terms of coming into journalism. So when you did start at the Times in 2010, you started writing for the Business News Desk. But since then, you were based in Afghanistan and are now the Latin America and Caribbean Bureau Chief. And so I'm curious about your own trajectory professionally and how you went from covering business news to covering uh, global stories um, in the way that you are today. Yeah, the uh, the trajectory has been a bit erratic, I guess you could say. And, and before I started at the New York Times covering financial news, I was actually covering urban issues in, in Chicago. I covered public schools. I covered urban violence. I covered a wide range of, of issues that I think were probably more, I was more naturally inclined to want to cover. You know, the, the big complex issues of a city, of inequality, of issues like, you know, great to me, social issues like the education gap, those things I was more naturally inclined to, to cover. And then when I started the New York Times, the job was, was sort of hardcore finance. It was covering things I, I didn't even know what they were. My first job was covering hedge funds. And I remember during the interview, I like, <laughs> I was talking to the, the new editor and he told me, he's like, oh, so your job's going to be covering hedge funds. And I was like, huh, what, what's a hedge fund? And he gave me this look like, seriously? And I sort of, I was like, oh, no, no, I mean, like, but really, what is a hedge fund? Because I just was trying to play it off. I had no idea what to say. Um, and ultimately, it wound up being something that I found fascinated me and taught me, taught me a lot about how to use non-public sources, how to convince people to talk to me, how to take extraordinarily complex things that your average reader isn't going to understand and break them down into more simple digestible bits. But from the time that I started at the New York Times, I think it was pretty clear to my editors and to others that I wanted to go overseas. And in particular, I, I wanted to I wanted to pursue a career in war correspondence. I, I felt very strongly that that was some of the most important reporting that journalists do and that, you know, 
America at that point was in two different wars, I felt like. Covering that was an important part of being a journalist. And so the transition was, it was less abrupt than you think. In some ways, it, wind, it wound up being a, a fusion of the two things I'd done before. One, which is covering very human social issues in a city like Chicago, things like poverty, inequality, violence. And then taking what I'd learned covering finance, which was more investigative, in some ways, much more detail-oriented and institution-oriented reporting, fusing those together. And I think that kind of became the, the prism through which I looked at coverage of the war in Afghanistan. And then subsequently, how, you know, after I spent three years in Afghanistan, about two and a half years in Afghanistan, I, I came and took over the Bureau in Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. And it kind of became a similar template, I guess, finding deep, intimate stories of individuals and then juxtaposing that with the more systemic kind of national thematics and issues that, that might ordinarily be a policy story, but through the prism of individuals. So you mentioned at the start that your book focuses on the nature of impunity in Mexico and how it hurts innocent citizens and the face of the country's very weak rule of law. So can you give a brief overview of how this culture of exemption and government failure shape daily life for Mexican citizens today? That's a great question. It's it's almost hard to find ways that it doesn't shape people's daily lives. I would I would sort of flip that and say, most everything you do is undergirded by the idea that the rule of law is not necessarily going to help you, that engaging with the authorities at any level, unless you're an extraordinarily powerful or wealthy person, is not going to necessarily be in your interest. So I think the state in many respects, especially when it comes to regular people, is more marked for its absence than its presence. Which means if I get in a car accident, I'd rather just pay the person there than have the cop show up because that's just an extra bribe for me to pay. If I need to go through some sort of long process, I'd rather pay someone to help me expedite that process extra legally than actually go through it. But it also means if a cartel has taken up root on my block, there is absolutely nothing I can do about it because who am I going to talk to? The police aren't going to come and help me. And worse, they might be working with that very same group of organized crime and it could get me in much more severe trouble. I think that dearth of faith in the government leaves people feeling very, very solitary. And it leaves communities in some ways binding together in these, and families in particular binding together in very profound ways because they are the kind of the only people they can rely on. So I, I, I would argue that the lack of rule of law, the lack of faith in government at a, at a basic level means that many people sort of endeavor in very individualistic or family-oriented ways into the country, which means there isn't necessarily a coherent presence in political life. And then two, I think where it has shown a presence in political life is the, is the government today. It's a government that for the first time in a very long time has, has started to pay much more attention to the disempowered, to the impoverished. And for better or worse, that has, has really created a political identity for people who support the president. And, some would argue he's a populist, but the kind of appeal that he has, I think, is a direct result of individuals who have felt so long ignored by the government so that even blunders, mistakes, and other sorts of problems that he's created in the government are forgiven for the mere fact that we finally have a president who cares about us. So in light of that, it sounds like your book is attempting to kind of provide this larger conversation around impunity in Mexico, but you're also telling the story of a single woman Miriam Rodriguez, which is actually a build-off of one of your New York Times magazine articles. 
And so I'm curious about what effect do you hope that blending these two types of stories the on the scale that you are in terms of this broader narrative with a very personal story will have on readers? I mean, in, in some ways, I think about myself as a reader and the things that I respond to. I want to be told a story. I want to be pulled into someone's life, a fascinating person's life, come to understand their flaws, their their remarkable qualities. And if I can use that as a vehicle to explain all the other things that would otherwise be turgid or long-winded or very academic, the idea is that you can blend those two things together and give people the opportunity to enjoy a story, a narrative, but at the same time, learn something about you know, a, a, an extraordinarily complicated and incredible country that whose people, in fact, are, I think, are the richness and also the, the greatest sufferers of their government's ineptitude. So I guess the, at the end of the day, it's to, it's to offer an analysis. It's to show people in real time with real events how things actually work so that when they hear Mexico, it's not just this sort of banal discussion of violence through narcos, it's no longer the shorthand, there's a depth of understanding about the various facets that lead a country to wind up where Mexico is today and its citizens. So I know you're still in the process of reporting and you're still in the process of writing, but I'm curious about when you tell the story, how you're framing the structure of the book and what you hope will drive the narrative. So the, the I mean, I actually have gotten to a point where I have an outline that for now, at least I think works. And it's going to sort of be, in the words of my editor, like a braiding of stories. One story is going to be the, the through line of the narrative of Miriam, which will start with a moment like that is kind of peak Miriam. You know, she's chasing down somebody on a bridge. And then it will get into the backdrop of who this person is and what she's after. And it will also get into the backdrop of who the people she's chasing are. And then the second sort of, I guess I would say the B narrative is going to be just a story about this town. And what happened there, how violence came to predominate and, and ultimately became this sort of tragic drug war icon, you know, this representation of all that all that could happen to a small town. And so in some ways, I'm using both the towns, the town of San Fernando, which had some of the most horrific instances of violence during the entire drug war, and the story of Miriam, who was from this town in a braided way. So there'll be a section on Miriam and some, some facet of either her life or childhood and her journey juxtaposed with something about the history of narcotics and violence in this particular place and sprinkled throughout will kind of be a broader context of Mexico. But I think that infusing the narrative with the narrative of a place as well, making the book not just about this woman, but about where she is from, adds more context and also I think deepens the roots of the story, or I hope. Yeah. I mean, so I, I noted that in 2020, you accepted the James Foley Courage and Journalism Award. And in your acceptance speech, you said, you know, more specifically that your intention in your effort to cover these types of stories is to write stories that not only inform readers, but also humanize victims of violence as well as the perpetrators. And so, especially in the case of Mary Rodriguez, given just her case and the brutality of it, I'm curious about, yeah, how you think about the work and telling these types of stories and how, how you kind of think about these broader conversations that you're informing. Yeah, I, um, I do believe that beyond just sort of explaining the context or discussing the policy, humanizing individuals is, is very much a part of our job. 
I mean, I think back to a different story. I wrote about a Mexican assassin, a Sicario. And I remember when I was doing that story, I was reading a lot of the stuff that people had written. And one of my greatest fears was falling into the trap of creating violence porn, just basically talking about someone who had done all this murder and, you know, carried out these crazy things. Because I think, you know, vis-a-vis Hollywood and other sorts of content, these worlds are glamorized. And when you get close to it, it's anything but glamorous. You know, most people involved in them are miserable. They hate their lives and the decision that they've made, but they feel trapped. And they are the ones fomenting this sort of misery for others. And so with that particular story, it was about explaining why someone gets into this world. Humanize is such an overused word. And I mean, I, I overuse it myself. But it is about offering this much more complex, almost literary style explanation. You know, it's not, it's not just simple in the same way that Miriam's not just simple. She was someone who had two children still alive, who had to watch their mother go on these arguably reckless missions searching for justice. You know, she's someone who had, you know, often used homophobic language. She's someone who was brusque and foul-mouthed at times. And yet she was someone whose moral compass was undeniable, whose fortitude to actually do the thing that everybody talks about doing, but 99.9% of people would never risk. That complexity of her story, I think, makes her more human, makes it a much more believable narrative. And in some ways, I mean, that's, I guess that's what we're trying to capture, right? Like in, in pursuit of expressing, I guess, the human condition, the more complicated and the more natural and human the individuals we write about are, the, the, I think the more clear and resonant the narrative is. So for me in particular, working in places where there are high levels of violence and it's, it's very easy to kind of take the shortcut because the story itself is powerful or rich or something very violent can oftentimes kind of stand in for a more complicated nuanced story. I, I think I, I try my hardest to kind of fight the instinct to, to not complicate and to not delve more deeply into the psyche and the humanity of the individuals that, that I'm writing about rather than using them, I guess, as props, but to really try and create people with agency and license because they are. No victim looks at themselves as some helpless victim that had no way for recourse until some, you know, United States reporter came and talked to them. You know, I think people have their own agency and do things in their hands are a profound example of that. But for that reason, I, I think that the pursuit of that complexity is something that that it kind of sits at the center of my reporting process at least. What drew you to the story when you first heard about it? You know, when I was 2017 and I was working on a different project, actually it was working on an investigative project related to Pegasus. We've seen a lot of reporting recently about this spyware, but in 2017, we did a multi-part series about how the Mexican government was using this, this malware to go after, you know, journalists, politicians, human rights activists. In the process of doing that, I remember coming across a blurb in, in one of the local news media about this mother who had been killed. And there was a mention of how she had helped find her, had, had actually managed to find the remains of her daughter and represented many other victims. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. She managed to find the remains mm-hmm. of her daughter. It was an exceptionally, exceptionally hard thing to do in Mexico. I mean, there's more than 60,000 people who are missing in this country and the vast majority of them will never figure out where their loved one is buried or even if their loved one has passed. 
And so I noted it. I was like, okay, I don't have time to go and do that now. But it was one of those things, I think as a reporter every now and then you see something that catches your eye and you're like, there must be something deeper there. And so the, the year of reporting concluded and the following year, I went up to visit her family in San Fernando and in, in, in Ciudad Victoria. And, uh, and yeah, I just like, as the story unfolded, I kept feeling like, oh my God, like this person is such a perfect example of what happens when you cannot rely on the state to help you. I mean, there's nothing more devastating for a human than to lose a child. And then to be ignored, dismissed by the government that's meant to help you, that is often complicit with the people who kidnapped and killed your child. And then to have someone actually do something about it. You know, that was, that was what was so exceptional. It's, it's so rare to see that. So I think in some ways that that element of it kind of sold itself, right? This almost vigilante it's in some ways she's like this, this superhero character if you don't if you're not careful it almost becomes this kind of archetype of justice in any case that that caught my eye and then i knew or i felt like to really get to get the depth of it especially because she passed away i needed to spend a lot of time there and the, the reporting process was it was a really challenging thing there were not a lot of publicly available documents then and so I would have to go and talk to sources in the government who had access to private and classified case files, take that information, bring it back to the family because trauma does tricky things with memory. And a lot of the family couldn't remember things until I sort of prompt them with something that I'd heard. And they'd be like, oh yeah, now I remember. My mom told me this story when I was here and that was like, this happened this way. And that was how I sort of retraced all the people that she had managed to locate how she'd managed to locate them, where they managed to be arrested. But it took, it took many cycles of interviews of like getting bits of information from the family and people who knew her and people who were involved in helping her and then taking that to other sources who could corroborate with court documents and case files and police reports. And then taking what I got from there back to the family and being like, what about this? What about this? And so it was a layered, it was a layered process, but, and that, but that was the hard part. The easy part was realizing there was a story there once, once I was able to confirm it. So this was initially a long-form article in the New York Times magazine that you're now turning into a book. And so I'm curious about what you're hoping to do with a book that you couldn't necessarily do with the article. That's a, a, again, that's a great question. As any, I think, journalist will tell you, 5,000, 6,000 words might sound like a lot, but when you've spent a tremendous amount of time researching something, the amount of material you're not able to include on the front end is profound. But from, from the start, I already had so much more material than I could possibly fit into an article. Material that like that wound up hurting to lose because I felt like it added something material to the to the context of the story. Beyond that, you know, you can flick at these ideas in an article of justice and impunity, but to really show what it looks like, what it feels like, what people have, to, what people experience in their day in and day out when confronting the government or lack thereof. You need the nuances. You need the micro stories. You need the you need the things that might not make it into a, a big article, but you have the time to explore and contextualize in a book. I also wanted to explore the lives of the individuals who were involved in both kidnapping and killing the daughter of Miriam Rodriguez. You know, one thing that I think we've all done is focus very much on victims, and for good reason, they're the ones who suffer. But the victimizers themselves. I find compelling and important because if this is going to be addressed, if there is going to be a way that governments learn to adapt and police and, and 
recover some of the lost members of their society is going to start with understanding why they are where they are. You know, and it's and that is on the most basic level at a municipal level where you're trying to figure out what to do with cultures of violence to U.S. immigration because the the violence that is causing so many people to flee that is creating this economic abyss for so many people that that starts with the same sorts of phenomenon who are the individuals that are behind these acts and what prompts them to do that and what are their realities so so i think in expanding it to book form there's a few different things i want to do number one i want to get into the intimacy and detail of this person's life because through that we can explore what these systemic problems look like I also want to get into the world of the individuals who are behind these sorts of violent acts because through them we can understand what causes people to commit these horrendous acts of violence and at their core who are they it's too easy to just say they're monsters when people say someone who did something is just a monster it's, it often doesn't take much more than looking beneath the surface to realize there are traumas there there there's victimization there as well it's not to excuse it but merely to explain it's not as simple as tossing people in a jail i'm not the United States for that matter. Um, and then also use this narrative as a device to talk about the war on drugs, talk about the persistence and depth of violence in Mexico, a place where, you know, groups like ISIS drew inspiration. This is not an ideological war, it's an economic war, and yet the degree of violence, the kinds of acts committed against other humans are so profound. And I think using this story and this narrative as a way to kind of explain how Mexico got to this point, how the rule of law not only doesn't function, but leads to this sort of excess in violence is another thing that I wasn't really able to, to capture in the, in the article that I think at, at book length, I'll be able to explore and, and kind of meditate on a bit more deeply. So then what impact do you hope your book will have on readers? with the added space to really explore these issues in a bit more depth? With any of our articles, what we're trying to do is bring both, you know, what we discussed earlier, a level of humanity and empathy to complex and difficult issues that kind of pervade an entire country. What I hope is that readers can take a look at this book, can find themselves captivated and fixated by this woman's remarkable story, which is inspirational and at the same time cautionary, but then also come to understand something about, you know, the United States Southern neighbor. Mexico is a massively important country and it plays a really important role in the region and worldwide. And so often it kind of gets reduced to, oh, it's just narco violence or, oh yeah, it's super corrupt. But to know that on the one hand and then to see it and to feel it and to grasp it in a much more nuanced and complicated way, I think, you know, it not only helps elevate the general conversation, but it helps elevate the way that our own policymakers think about it. So, I mean, I guess the most ambitious version would be to affect the way that people think about Mexico and, and their ability to understand the things that happen here is more than just another iteration of the same old story. So between your current position in Mexico and your previous post as the Bureau Chief in Kabul, which you mentioned earlier, you know, you've really placed yourself in the path of significant violence and danger throughout your reporting. So can you describe how it feels to be a journalist on the front lines of war um, and to see what you're seeing on a mass scale in countries that are a bit more volatile? Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm always very reluctant to talk about experiences on the front line because 
at the end of the day, I'm there of my own volition. And experiencing that in some ways draws the attention to me when, when I'm clearly not the person suffering. I, I think what it does, is it, 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 it reduces your illusions. When you see it, when you feel it, when you smell it, when you watch the, the human toll, I think there's a, there's a chastening that happens. I think it's very easy to write about war from Washington or to write about conflict through the prism of policy, whether it's politicians in El Salvador or you know, in the United States. I think it is a very different depth and emotional connection when you watch it yourself. Your understanding of it grows hopefully more nuanced and you internalize these things in a way that, that simply reading about them or hearing about them or talking to someone about them can't place. And I think in some ways it offers, it also offers a sense of humility, the, the magnitude of, of what's transpiring and your understanding that like, I am such a small piece in all of this, but it, it also helps to kind of reorient the moral compass. You see where, where it really stops, where, where policy ends and human lives begin, where the action of, I mean, you know, you asked before about going off to Afghanistan and, and yeah, for me, the magnitude and gravity of war was what it did to people. The lives it shattered and the nations left broken. Um, and you know, the innocence affected in particular. And I don't think you can really grasp that or feel the gravity of it until you're there, until you actually see it, until you, again, you know, all of your sensory perceptions are overwhelmed. And suddenly I think you come to grasp that like, this isn't just, this isn't just a job, you know, it's not just, Oh yeah, let me just punch the clock here. It's something that there's an awesome responsibility. And I think for me, at least being in these places and seeing it and internalizing as much as I can, the pain and the suffering and, and trying to bring something to it is, it is a form of advocacy that has nothing to do with activism. It is just about showing the gravity and the seriousness and, and taking, that, taking that material and doing the best you can to bring it justice. And I think had to see it firsthand, you're, you're much more committed. So as you embark on your fellowship this year, where do you hope to be with the project a year from now? I, and I'm sure my editors would hope that I'm, I'm rounded the corner on a draft and that, you know, I, I, there was a question I was asked before about writer's block. And I think one of the ways that I get through writer's block is just by continuing to write, even if I know it's garbage, even if I know I'm going to look at it the next day and feel humiliated that I even put that in writing. It's just getting words on there because so much of the process, at least for me, is rewriting. It's, it's getting it out there, sifting through the garbage and finding one or two pieces that are able to be rescued and then reassembling. And so by that point, I hope to be where I'm going through in a very serious and deliberate way rewriting, finding and restructuring and, and kind of making the adjustments that ultimately turn writing into a story. Well, we're thrilled to support you this year and to see your project take shape. Thank you for your time today, Zam. Uh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2022.